One of the more curious stories to emerge from the earliest decades of American professional football history happened on December 26, 1927, when the New York Giants, the best team in the National Football League that year, traveled to Oklahoma to play a local team called the Hominy Indians. True to their name, the Hominy Indians were made up entirely of Native American players, representing such indigenous communities as the Osage, the Cherokee, and Lakota Sioux. Their star was an Arapahoe fullback named John Levi, who led the Hominy Indians to an upset win over the New York Giants that day. Now you might think, as I did when I first heard about this game from an Oklahoma-born friend, did this really happen? The answer is yes, it absolutely did happen, and in today's episode I'm going to dig into the events that led up to that day since it's more than just an inspirational sports story. Indeed, apart from the David versus Goliath notion of an NFL squad playing a local indigenous team, what initially caught my attention was the prominence of John Levi, whose name came up again and again, including in this clip from Playground of the Native Son, a 2013 documentary honoring the Native American athletes who played in the game. The Hominy Indians put together a football team that could compete at the national level. This is John Levi. Then this is our dad, George. 1924 was when John made All-American. His athletic abilities were excellent. He was a, an equivalent to Jim Thorpe. Uh, it's unfortunate somebody like that uh, wasn't given the notoriety that he deserved. You can imagine football in that day, no pads and no face masks, nothing. Back then, I think it was a more of a impact sport. The Indians just have that drive in them to compete because maybe they were always the underdog. Two and a half minutes into watching this movie trailer celebrating the football prowess of the great John Levi, I saw a face on screen that looked familiar to me. So, not all that long ago, I decided to make a phone call to a certain 94-year-old man who lives near Tucson, Arizona. Hello. Uh, hello, this is Rolf Potts. I'm calling for Coach Levi. You're speaking with Coach Levi. Fantastic. <laughs> it's been a long time, Coach. It sure has, Rolf. <laughs> but I've been keeping track of you. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You're down in Arizona now, are you? Yeah, we're down in sunny Arizona. Uh-huh. How long have you been down there? Oh, we've been here for about 30 years. Okay. I came down to take care of my mother, mm -hmm. and when she passed away, we just liked it so much here that we decided to stay. Well, to get I, away from that Kansas wind. Well, I tell you what, I don't know if you can... See, the John Levi I knew wasn't a star football player. He was my junior high gym coach, a larger-than-life figure who'd been working at Hadley Junior High in Wichita since the school first opened in the late 1950s. I saw him each day in gym class and after school at track practice. To this day, I don't think I'll ever think of him as a person named John Levi. For me and for the thousands of kids who attended Hadley from the late 1950s to the early 1990s, he was and always will be known as Coach Levi. Yeah, and uh, you had I was a track runner for you in the 1980s, and of course you were the gym coach, so I saw you every day over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> now, you sure did. Yeah, I yeah. sure remember you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was a, yeah. I'm a pretty tall guy now, but I was a little guy in junior high. You were a little skinny guy. You sure could run. The story I'm about to tell isn't about my junior high track career or even Coach Levi himself, but everything here is connected, as we'll eventually find out. 
Like any good sports narrative, the details and characters I share here will eventually lead up to the big game between the NFL Giants and a Native American team in Oklahoma, but the truest living legacy of that 1927 football contest may well be the man who was my track and gym coach back in the 1980s. The Hominy Indians played a football game against the New York Giants, and their star player was John Levi. And I thought to myself, I know a John Levi. I wonder if he's... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's that's my dad. Now, I'll tell you a little bit about my dad. Okay. We only... I only knew him until I was uh, eight years old. Hmm. He left the family, and... uh, I I have very vague memories of him, but as far as really getting to know my father, I really didn't get to know him. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. This week, as America is preparing to watch Super Bowl 57, which this year pits the Philadelphia Eagles against my Kansas City Chiefs, I'd like to tell another story from the history of American football. You might recall that back in episode 97 of Deviate, I talked to Todd Goldberg about my childhood fixation with NFL football in the context of another Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl appearance. This time, I want to tell the true story of the time the NFL champion New York Giants traveled to Oklahoma and were defeated by a team led by an Arapaho superstar named John Levi. A little later, we'll hear more from Coach Levi, John's son, who'll turn 95 years old later this year. But since Big John's playing career happened before Coach was born, I'll recount this story using a variety of other sources, most notably a 1972 book entitled simply John Levi of Haskell. The book was written by Frank McDonald, the man who coached John Levi when he played college football at Haskell Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. Around the time McDonald's book came out, the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs put out a recruiting film in the hopes of attracting indigenous students to Haskell. Here's an outtake. Each year, over 1,200 young Indian students, like Alfreda, leave their homes in 32 different states to come to Haskell Indian Junior College in Lawrence, Kansas. Alfreda and her fellow students represent 100 tribes from Florida to Alaska. When they come to Haskell, they bring with them parts of the Indian experience from all parts of the United States. At Haskell, they retain their cultural ties, but at the same time, they learn the things they need to know in order to make a choice about the way they shall live and how they shall make their living. Now, around the time that recruiting video was made in the 1970s, Haskell was a junior college, but in John Levi's day, it was an industrial trade school for young Native Americans. Haskell was similar in many ways to Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, famous for the great Native American athlete Jim Thorpe, who won two gold medals in the 1912 Olympics and who the Associated Press later ranked third behind Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan as one of the greatest American athletes of the 20th century. Many people considered John Levi to be the athletic heir to Jim Thorpe, including Jim Thorpe himself, who befriended John Levi in Kansas and called him, quote, the greatest athlete I have ever seen. John Levi was born in 1898 in Indian Territory, now the state of Oklahoma, the son of an Arapaho couple named Tom Turkey and Cecilia Goodkiller Levi. The name Levi came from John's grandfather, a U.S. Army lieutenant who'd served in Indian Territory in the mid-19th century. 
I haven't been able to determine if Lieutenant Levi was Jewish, but decades later, when his grandson played a much-publicized college football game in New York City, he was said to have won lots of fans in Manhattan's Lower East Side, where Levi was a common surname among the Jewish immigrants who lived there. Whatever the case, in the early part of the 20th century, college football was far more popular than the pro game, as evidenced by this movie newsreel from the 1920s. When college boys by the tens of thousands start kicking like Corrines and exercising like desperate matrons, it's a sure sign that football has once more cast its spell upon the land. The youth who wants to become a gridiron hero must first sweat off that suet. Have a bottle of liniment handy for Horace. Coordination is important, too. Each autumn, the air is filled with flying leaves and flying football players. Around this time, the best collegiate football teams were from either the Ivy League in the East or the Big Ten Conference in the Upper Midwest, schools like Penn and Princeton and Michigan and Illinois. But by the 1920s, one of the most feared college teams in America was the all-Indigenous squad from the tiny Kansas Industrial School of Haskell. John Levi joined the Haskell team after a stint at Phillips Academy in Oklahoma. And in his first year with the team in 1922, Haskell ended its season with a 21-20 win over Baylor University a powerhouse Texas team that had, just one week before, clinched the Southwest Conference championship over Southern Methodist University. John Levi was the undisputed star of the Haskell team, not just because he helped them win games, but also because he was exciting to watch on the field. Standing six foot two and weighing 200 pounds, his football skills might be compared to modern stars like Hall of Fame running back Barry Sanders with his lateral agility and explosive zigzag speed, or Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes with his astonishingly strong and accurate passing arm. When Haskell played the Big Ten Conference squad from Minnesota the following year, the Minneapolis Star newspaper noted that Levi was, quote, about as easy to stop as a 200-pound eel. Ripley's Believe It or Not later marveled that John Levi had once thrown a football 83 yards, and some witnesses swore that he could punt the ball 75 yards, something you never see today, even at the pro level. John Levi also played spring sports at Haskell and once at Drake University in Iowa. He participated in a track and field meet between the innings of a baseball game, winning the discus, the shot put, and the high jump, all while wearing his Haskell Indians baseball uniform. In time, John Levi's reputation grew beyond the American Midwest, and in 1923, a sports promoter, who had previously brought Wild West Indian shows to Europe, arranged to have Haskell's football team travel east and play a squad of U.S. Marine cadets at this place. Yankee Stadium in New York City. They call it the house that Ruth built with good reason. His mighty bat was the magnet that drew the crowds. That bat, the terror of major league pitchers, had won him all that the nation could offer. Yankee Stadium was, of course, a baseball venue, and the Haskell Indians versus Quantico Marines exhibition scrimmage marked the first time it had ever hosted a football game. The Haskell team used the Yankees' home team facilities that day, and the game's promoters saw to it that John Levi used Babe Ruth's locker stall when he changed from his street clothes into his football uniform. East Coast sports fans weren't used to seeing indigenous sports teams play, and it was said that many New Yorkers assumed the Haskell players would show up at Yankee Stadium wearing buckskin moccasins and feather headdresses. 10,000 New York sports fans turned out to watch that day as Haskell played the Marine cadets to a 14-14 tie. 
But that game was remembered less for its final score than for the fact that the New York Yankees offered John Levi a baseball contract after watching him on the football field. This may well be the most stereotypically American part of the John Levi story, since the Yankees, who had never even seen him play baseball, wanted to promote him as the next Jim Thorpe, a multi-sport celebrity superstar whose athletic good looks and enigmatic Native American bearing was as much of a draw as his athletic prowess. In addition to the pro baseball offer, John Levi's appearance in New York City also put him on the radar of East Coast sports reporters, which led to him being selected as a 1923 first-team collegiate All-American, alongside players from Penn State, Yale, Harvard, Cornell, and Michigan. One of his fellow All-Americans was the iconic Illinois running back Red Grange, nicknamed the Galloping Ghost, who we'll hear more about a little bit later. The U.S. Olympic Committee also scouted John Levi when he was in New York, but because he'd played off-season semi-pro football games to make money back in the Midwest, he wasn't allowed to compete in the 1924 Paris Olympics decathlon. If those old Olympic amateur rules sound arbitrary in retrospect and more or less designed to exclude working-class athletes like John Levi, it's also worth considering that 1924 was the year Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act, which gave indigenous Americans like the young men who played football for Haskell the right to vote in elections for the first time since the United States was founded a century and a half earlier on the supposed idea that it had a government of the people, by the people, and for the people who lived there. Levi played one last season for Haskell the next fall, leading the Indians to seven victories, including a 17-13 win over the Ivy League squad at Brown University. In reporting about that game, the Providence Journal called the Haskell Indian football team, quote, a fast-running, hard-hitting tribe of copper-skinned warriors, led by John Levi, the modern Jim Thorpe, end quote. A few months later, John Levi joined the New York Yankees in Florida for spring training, and the New York Times noted that he was, quote, the most photographed player in St. Pete. Levi went on to have a promising rookie year in the Yankees' farm system, hitting 346 for the minor league Harrisburg Senators, but a combination of injuries and homesickness eventually took him back to Kansas, where he worked as an assistant coach at Haskell and played occasional semi-pro football games. Now, professional football wasn't nearly as corporate or self-contained back then as it is now. And if you look at newspaper archives from this era, you'll see that John Levi was recruited by a dizzying array of pro football teams. In September of 1925, an NFL team called the Pottsville Maroons claimed to have him under contract. Then, one month later, another NFL team, the Kansas City Cowboys, announced that he would play for them against the Rock Island Independents. So far as I can tell, he never showed up to play for either team. The following year, in 1926, newspaper reports indicated that Levi had been recruited by the Akron Pros of the NFL, the Brooklyn Horsemen of the American Football League, and the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast Football League. There's no evidence he played for any of those pro teams, and the fact that none of those teams existed by the end of the 1920s says a lot about how financially precarious pro football could be at the time. Here's an outtake from a 1983 HBO documentary called The History of Pro Football. Despite its new name, the National Football League operated on a casual basis and teams popped up and died from year to year. What the sport needed was a drawing card. In 1925, it got just that. George Haller signed Red Grange, the Galloping Ghost, and the Chicago Bears toured the country and capitalized on his name. 
But the prosperity Grange brought the Bears was short-lived. Professional football still lacked structure. One man alone could not make the game. Now, I promise this story is still making its way towards the day in 1927 when John Levi and the Hominy Indians faced off against the NFL's New York Giants on a field in Oklahoma. But getting a sense for that game first requires an understanding of how pro football worked just a few years after the National Football League had been founded. The New York Giants were technically the best team in the NFL in 1927, but the league didn't start holding actual championship games until 1933, which meant that the Giants simply had the best regular season record that year, having defeated teams like the Chicago Bears and the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets and the Providence Steamrollers, while suffering just one loss and a single tie, both to the Cleveland Bulldogs. Moreover, the New York Giants squad that traveled to Oklahoma that December wasn't the exact same team that had played those NFL franchises just a few weeks earlier. Look at the roster from the football team that played against John Levi and the Hominy Indians, and you'll see a handful of regular season New York Giants players, but also players from the Buffalo Bisons, as well as a few semi-pro players who'd never suited up for an actual NFL game. Indeed, professional contracts for most players back then amounted to a few thousand or even a few hundred dollars, and it was common for players to make extra money by joining ad hoc barnstorming squads that traveled around the country after the regular season, combining various pro and semi-pro players under official-sounding names like the New York Giants, and taking on local teams in places like Ohio and California and rural Oklahoma. So, while the New York Giants versus Hominy Indians game might sound like a Hollywood-style David versus Goliath story, the matchup wasn't as inherently lopsided as it might sound now. In fact, the most intriguing aspect of the game wasn't just that NFL players took on an indigenous local team, but that they specifically came to play in Osage County, Oklahoma, rather than a place like Lawrence, Kansas, where most of the Hominy Indians, including John Levi, had first made their name as Haskell Institute football players. To make sense of the game's Osage County setting, it helps to understand that the recent discovery of huge oil fields in Oklahoma had turned the Osage Indians into some of the richest people per capita in the entire country. Osage County had so much money in the 1920s, in fact, that it was home to an infamous series of murders, which later this year will be the subject of Killers of the Flower Moon, a Martin Scorsese movie starring Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jesse Plemons. In the 1920s, the Osage Indians in Oklahoma were the richest people per capita in the world. One of the largest oil fields in North America was found on the reservation. The Osage families became overnight millionaires. Then, one by one, they became targets. My grandfather died of poison whiskey. They shot her in the head, just point blank. A car came up from the street and ran over him. David Gran, author of The Lost City of Z, reveals the true story behind one of the most mysterious and sinister crimes in American history. Who would you trust? Who could you trust? Killers of the Flower Moon. That was actually the trailer from the book that Killers of the Flower Moon is based on. The movie trailer hasn't been released as of this recording, but it underscores the fact that the Osage people of rural northern Oklahoma were in a position to organize and finance the best all-indigenous football team in America. In fact, two years before the New York Giants game, Hominy had hired John Levi to come down and play in a different football contest against a rival team from Fairfax, Oklahoma. To understand how remarkable football culture was in Oklahoma in the 1920s, you have to realize that Hominy and Fairfax weren't even the biggest towns in Osage County. 
Bartlesville, Ponca City, and the county seat town of Pawhuska had bigger populations, but Hominy and Fairfax had oil money, which meant that Fairfax could afford to hire the entire squad of the nearest NFL team, the Kansas City Cowboys, to play for them as ringers. Not to be outdone, Hominy put together its own ringer team of current and former Haskell players, including John Levi. As could happen in cash-rich corners of America in the Roaring Twenties, betting on the game was rife. The oil-rich Osage are said to have wagered a total of $200,000 on the contest. That's more than $3 million in today's money. When John Levi burst into the end zone late in the fourth quarter to seal a come-from-behind victory for Hominy's Haskell Ringers over Fairfax's Kansas City Cowboy Ringers, the Osage elders donated about $30,000, that's more than $600,000 in today's money, toward Haskell's new sports stadium. That stadium, with its grand arched entry gate, still hosts sporting events in Lawrence, Kansas. So, by the time John Levi returned to Oklahoma to play for the Hominy Indians against the New York Giants two years later, he was already a sports legend, both in Oklahoma and Kansas in the greater collegiate sporting world. And despite the New York Giants' NFL credentials, Levi was certainly the most gifted and recognizable athlete on the field that day. Since the game took place in a tiny Oklahoma town the day after Christmas in 1927, there isn't much documentary evidence of the contest itself, though a look at the box score makes it easy to imagine a Hollywood-style sequence of dramatic story beats and cinematic set pieces. The New York team boasted a great passing game, at least by 1920 standards, but the Hominy Indians managed to fluster the Giants' receivers and scored the game's first touchdown on a 50-yard interception return. The Giants pivoted to a bruising ground game after that, equalizing the score on a five-yard rushing touchdown late in the second quarter. With the game tied 6-6 coming out of halftime, John Levi, who usually played fullback, took over as the team's quarterback and threw a spectacular 60-yard scoring pass, which proved to be the decisive play as the Indians held on to a 13-6 lead, capping a remarkable victory over the football Giants. Of all his many accomplishments as an athlete, John Levi's performance against the New York Giants that day was probably his last marquee accomplishment. The following year, Big John's wife Helen, a Michigan Chippewa he'd met at Haskell, gave birth to a son who, decades later, I knew as Coach Levi. Big John Levi eventually became estranged from his family in the 1930s, and not much is known about his later life. In 1946, while living in Colorado and working at a meatpacking plant, Big John Levi was stabbed in a hotel room by a woman he'd met in a tavern. He died in a Denver hospital at age 47. Now, one inherent limitation of great American sports stories is that these stories involve young athletes and nobody stays young for long. But sometimes the truest legacies of these athletes have little to do with their feats on the playing field. When I was a 14-year-old kid in Coach Levi's gym class, I had no idea that he was the son of one of the greatest Native American athletes in U.S. history. Nor did I know that Coach Levi was a decorated military veteran who'd served as a Marine Corps medic at the Battle of Chosin Reservoir in Korea. For me and for the thousands of school kids who knew him from gym class or track practice or basketball practice at Hadley Junior High, Coach Levi was just this guy that you respected, even as you were slightly terrified of him. In 2018, when Coach turned 90 years old, some of his former students sent him video greetings on Facebook. Hey, Coach Levi, this is Tony Johnson. I went to Hadley Junior High from 1983 to 1986, and I just want to wish you a happy 90th birthday. And take them and get them all washed up, Johnson. Take them and get them all washed up. 
That's my old classmate Tony, who previously appeared back in episode 136 of this podcast. He was the star player on Coach Levi's basketball team when we were at Hadley, and he later went on to play Division I basketball for Wichita State University. When Tony says, take them and get them all washed up, he was impersonating Coach Levi ordering us to wash our gym uniforms each week, an impersonation that any boy who ever had coach in gym class can probably do verbatim to this very day. Indeed, Coach Levi had a distinctly military bearing as he presided over our gym classes, and when I talked to him on the phone, I asked him about that. I guess I yelled a lot. Okay. I just remember that. Well, I think some people were a little bit scared of you, Coach, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the the, uh, teachers at Hadley said, Coach Levi still thinks he's in the Marines and is drilling the troops. I guess when you're young, and especially when you're the age you are in junior high, it doesn't occur to you that the adults in your life were once young, too. Turns out Coach was himself a good athlete, excelling in basketball at tribal schools in North Dakota, where he and his mom lived in the 1940s. He joined the Navy when he was still a teenager to take advantage of the GI Bill, and when the Korean War broke out in 1950, he was assigned as a medic with the 1st Marine Division based out of Camp Pendleton, California. The 1st Marine Division took part in General Douglas MacArthur's famous Inchun Landing, as well as the street-by-street ground fighting in the Battle for Seoul. At the Battle of Chosin Reservoir, where the 1st Marine Division was surrounded by 300,000 Chinese soldiers and temperatures dropped to 40 degrees below zero, the young Native American corpsman kept vials of medical morphine in his mouth to keep them from freezing solid. It was very, very cold. 30 degrees below, cold and snow and wind. So it was, and, and everything froze up and... We were treating our troops for frostbite, and whenever there was a wounded Marine, or the blood would clot quickly, and a lot of them survived hmm. because of the cold weather. But anyway, the equipment, the trucks, and the, and the weapons, and some of the heavy artillery they, uh, the, weather, the weather just took care of that, and they weren't able to use it. Looking back, it's remarkable how many of my teachers in junior high and high school were military veterans. In his 1992 book, Band of Brothers, which was later made into an HBO miniseries, historian Stephen Ambrose expressed amazement at how many of the soldiers he interviewed went on to become school teachers. It was as if, after having seen so much destruction, they felt compelled to go home and build something positive. Ambrose was writing about World War II veterans, but I'd reckon his observation would apply just as readily to veterans of the Korean War, people like my high school English teacher John Ferdine, to whom I co-dedicated my first book, Vagabonding, or to Vietnam War vets like my junior high social studies teacher Gary Robertson, who challenged us, even as young teenagers, to think about history in complex and nuanced ways. Indeed, as a war hero, John Levi Jr. could readily have gone into commerce or politics and focus his pursuits into something flashy and self-serving, but instead he elected to go back home to his birth state of Kansas, get an education degree, and become a junior high physical education teacher. If the legend of Big John Levi still lives on, it could be through the young lives that were influenced by his son. This includes the standout athletes that Coach Levi mentored at Hadley Junior High, 
people like John Mosier, who went on to play football for the Denver Broncos, or Russ Campbell, who eventually played a season with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and perhaps most notably Barry Sanders, three years ahead of Mia Hadley, who during his stint with the Detroit Lions established himself as one of the greatest, most exciting to watch John Levi-style running backs in the history of the NFL. But I'd reckon a teaching and coaching legacy can also include people whose lives didn't end up being shaped by professional sports, but who nonetheless find themselves grateful that Coach Levi played such a memorable and positive role in their young lives. People like me. Well, you're quite a guy too, Ralph. You're quite a guy. (laughs) As are you, Coach. I'm very proud of you, and and I'm, I'm so happy that we could get together, you know. And uh, like MacArthur said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about the life of Big John Levi and the game between the New York Giants and the Hominy Indians, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.